Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the official launch of the Australian Association of Islamic and Muslim Studies. Henceforth, I'll refer to the association as AIMS. Uh, this, this event is uh, also co-hosted uh, by Sydney Ideas, the Centre for Asian and Pacific Law, or CAPLIS, uh, the Religion State Society Network, based at the School of Social and Political Sciences and the Faculty of, um, of Arts and Social Sciences, um, and, as I noted earlier, Sydney Ideas. AIMS is essentially an interdisciplinary network of scholars based um, at Australian universities and largely geared towards teaching and research excellence on Islam and Muslim affairs. My name is Lily Zubaida Rahim. I'm uh, the interim uh, vice president of uh, AIMS and I am based at the Department of Government and International Relations at Sydney University. The theme of the AIMS launch is Human Rights and the Rise of Islamophobia, Academic Responses in the Age of Populist Anger and Fear. And our first speaker is none other than Emeritus Professor Gillian Triggs. She, as we all know, is uh, and love, uh, is the president of the Human Rights uh, Commission over the last five years or so. Um, Professor Triggs was also dean of the Faculty of Law and Chalice Professor of International Law at the University of Sydney. She is a former barrister and former governor of the College of Law. Um, inter alia, her focus at the Human Rights Commission is on the implementation uh, in Australian law of the human rights treaties to which Australia is a party. So without further ado, will you please join me in welcoming Professor Gillian Triggs. Thank you very much for that, that welcome. Um, I was, uh, of course, Dean of the Sydney Law School when we did the fit-out for this building and moved into this wonderful uh, theatre. Uh, so I, it brings me uh, with enormous pleasure to be, to be here tonight uh, to, to revisit the, the university, the law school, but most particularly for the purposes of this evening. Um, I have, of course, quite accurately been described as Emeritus Professor Gillian Triggs, and I was told by uh, an erstwhile friend of mine that emeritus is Latin for has-been. <laughs> I've got uh, only a few more weeks left in my position um, as, uh, as President of the Human Rights Commission, so I'm, I'm taking advantage of the opportunity to, to, to speak out as clearly as I can about issues that uh, we've understood uh, are so important at the, at the, at the, um, at the Commission. Can I begin um, by, by recognising the, the, the President, um, uh, Professor 
Akbazadeh, who um, has been very influential in, in establishing this Australian Association of Islamic and Muslim Studies. And I congratulate the advisory board and the interim executive committee on what I think is a very important initiative uh, in establishing this, this association. In these volatile times of xenophobia and populist nationalism, I can think of no more valuable task for scholars than to join together within Australia and internationally to provide a multidisciplinary understanding of Islam and of Muslim issues. It's time for scholars of our universities to stand up, to speak out and to bring reason and evidence to the public debate about so many issues of concern to the Muslim community. The conflict with Daesh in Syria and the Middle East protection for the 65 million or so asylum seekers, refugees and persons displaced by war, poverty and discrimination, a significant percentage of them Muslim people, and the balance of the right to freedom of religion with the right to freedom of expression, rights that are vital to our multicultural society and vital to the well-being of the Muslim community in Australia. Over my five years as President of the Commission, I've come to understand both the majestic power of the law along with its fundamental frailties. It's become axiomatic for lawyers such as me to recognise that it's one thing for Parliament to pass laws and quite another to give those laws practical effect. Legislation can be effective only with a genuine commitment from the community and cultural support. But above all, I've learned about the damage done to social cohesion and inclusion by ill-informed stereotypes. Indeed, to generalise about the human rights breaches that concern most Australians most of the time, they are not any of the global issues that I've mentioned, and indeed issues for which perhaps I am a little known in Australia. The reality is that Australians complain to the Commission under human rights and anti-discrimination laws that they've not been treated as individuals, but rather as representatives of groups, whether as older Australians or a person with disability. Australians complain about their treatment on the basis of preconceived ideas about gender and sexual orientation, race, ethnicity and religious beliefs. And Indigenous Australians continue to be concerned about the disproportionate incarceration rates, domestic violence and ill health. Stereotypical thinking has been especially damaging for Muslims in Australia and reflects a combination of factors over what I like to, to, uh, to, to, to assess from about the last 16 years, arguably since that momentous year in 2001. In August that year, the Norwegian freighter, the Tampa, sailed into Melbourne waters with 433 asylum seekers, mainly Shia Muslims, Hazaras, from Afghanistan. They'd been rescued on the high seas by a kindly and rather courageous Norwegian captain. The Tampa incident that year was followed in October by allegations from the Howard government that asylum seekers arriving in Australian waters without a visa were throwing their children overboard to ensure that they were rescued and taken to Australia, allegations that were proven false by a subsequent Senate inquiry. And some weeks later, on the 9th of September, the attacks were made on the Twin Towers and Pentagon in the United States, with the tragic loss of life, sparking the continuing conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria, with even greater loss 
of civilian life and predominantly Muslim life. The following year, of course, in 2002, we saw the Bali bombings that exacerbated anti-Muslim feelings along with some particular criminal trials held here in Sydney. A common feature of all of these events and their aftermath has been the links made between all those of the Muslim faith and people smuggling trades, global security and terrorism and religious fundamentalism, such links that have been promoted explicitly, sometimes more subtly, by senior political and community leaders. A recent example of the growing tolerance for demonising Muslims generally has been the controversy over a Facebook comment on Anzac Day by Abdel Magid, a hajib-wearing Muslim woman. She drew attention to the plight of detainees on Manus Island and Nauru and of the refugees from Syria and Palestine. Despite a speedy apology for what she conceded was a disrespectful comment on this day of remembrance, this relatively minor incident has been used to demand her removal from the Council of Australian Arab Relations, to constrain her right to freedom of speech and to demand that as an Australian resident since she was a child, she should return to the Sudan, her country of origin. This single incident clearly touched some raw nerves. Indeed, the headscarf has become a lightning rod for attacking Muslim women. The incident has also prompted further ritualistic attacks on the independence of the Australian Broadcasting Commission and the use of populist national language that we should put <coughs> Australia first. An echo, of course, from other parts of the world. All this in the context of assertions that we are the most successful multicultural country in the world and of the Prime Minister's recent proposal that Australian citizenship should be confined to those who can demonstrate that they accept Australian values and can speak English to a level that in fact is required for admission, as I well know, to the law school at the University of Sydney. <laughs> An extraordinary idea. And a deeply discriminatory idea. Tonight, I'd like to focus briefly, if I may, on three issues of concern to the Human Rights Commission from the perspective of human rights law and anti-discrimination statutes, as they relate specifically to those of Muslim faith in Australia. The problem, of course, of racism, the 18C debate and the right to freedom of speech and the particular plight of asylum seekers. But first, racism and some facts, many of which, of course, this audience will know very well indeed. There are 460,000 Muslims living in Australia, being 2.2% of the Australian population. Most live in Sydney and Melbourne, though some live throughout regional and rural Australia. Muslims have visited Australia and traded with Aboriginal Australians since the 18th century and they've come as migrants from the middle to late 19th century. Despite a long history of Muslim migration and engagement with Australia, there is consistent evidence that Muslims are subject to higher rates of racism than pertains for other racial and religious groups within the Australian community. Of course, racism often overlaps with religious and cultural hostility and it can be difficult to separate them out, and that's, of course, relevant both from a practical and legal perspective. But the research is clear. The Muslim community is disproportionately subject to hate speech and to discrimination in employment and the delivery of goods and services. A study by the University of Western Sydney 
found racial prejudice against Muslims to be three times that of all other Australians. The Scanlon Foundation found in 2015 high rates of reported discrimination for faith groups generally, but that there was a significantly more negative attitude towards Muslims rather than Christians, Buddhists or Jews. Strong negative attitudes exist in respect of all immigrants from the Middle East compared with all other migrant groups. More recently, in 2015, a research survey of 10,000 respondents by Andrew Marcus confirms these trends. 51% of Muslims born in Australia reported discrimination against them in the previous 12 months. They reported a deterioration in relations linked to the actions of politicians who they saw as inciting division within the community and also linked to a bias and ill-informed media. Marcus reported that 75% of Muslim Australians had a great or a moderate sense of belonging in Australia and that's a very important statistic and I think true. About 14% either didn't know the answer to that question or declined to answer it but it nonetheless leaves us with a very high percentage of Muslim Australians who feel quite comfortable in their acceptance and recognition within the Australian community and that is something of course to be proud of. But the, uh, but the trends and the statistics uh, do suggest some worrying uh, levels of discrimination uh, within our community. That research is supported by the work of the Human Rights Commission as long as 2003, uh, two years after the 9-11 attacks. Most of the 1,400 surveyed at that time reported prejudice on the basis of their race or religion ranging from one-off incidents in the street of public transport to sustained prejudice at work, schools and universities. Muslim women are especially vulnerable because they're instantly recognisable when they wear their traditional dress and many women have reported growing isolation from the community, alienation and a loss of trust in authority. Well, the Australian Human Rights Commission does have a special insight into the level of racial discrimination and abuse in Australia through our complaints handling processes. Last year we received about 19,000 inquiries and formal complaints for conciliation and 21% of formal complaints arose under the Racial Discrimination Act, numbering 429 cases. Overwhelmingly, these complaints concerned discrimination in employment and the delivery of goods and services on the grounds of race and national origin. Only 77, that's a high number in any event, but 77 complaints concerned racial hatred laws, being only 3.8% of the complaints total for the Commission. I make the very general point that while um, in the Commission and certainly in my work I've been concerned about bigger issues of asylum seekers, refugees, uh, uh, incarceration of Indigenous Australians at unprecedented uh, numbers, the worst figures in the world, uh, violence against women, the things that concern most Australians most of the time are discrimination on the basis of employment and the delivery of goods and services. That is what the community is actually most worried about in their daily lives. But it is interesting that at least 21% of those concern racial uh, discrimination or discrimination on the grounds of national origin. Uh, the Islamophobia Register has also documented a significant increase in race hate, recording incidents where mosques have been defaced and women abused on public transport or supermarkets. One thing that's been very interesting for me to observe over the last few years is that 
initially so many of these complaints about abuse in the public arena could never be demonstrated. It would be he said, she said of that variety. But now, increasingly, people take out their phone and they video it. And we now have evidence within the Commission that these events have occurred and it's much easier to achieve some kind of conciliation uh, around a table at the, at the Commission. Well, exacerbating anti-Muslim feelings are calls by members of Parliament to ban the wearing of burqa in, the, in federal Parliament, a proposal that I believe feeds misconceptions falsely linking wearing, wearing the burqa with national and parliamentary security. It is moreover also concerning that anti-Muslim bigotry contaminates the community generally. The licensing of prejudice against one group may then be adopted in respect of others, indicated, for example, by rising racial abuse against Sikh and Indian Australians. Attacks on religious freedoms are, of course, of serious concern. All Australians have the right to enjoy basic freedoms, whatever their religion, race or ethnicity. They have a right to be free of fear, to be safe, to be treated fairly and as equals. And they have the right to practice their faith without harassment or humiliation. It might be recalled that the right to freedom of religious expression is one of the few human rights protections in our Constitution, a right that's been very widely or generously interpreted by the High Court of Australia. But the disproportionate effect of racial discrimination and race hatred on the Muslim community leads me to my second point, and that is the right to freedom of speech and the vulnerability of the Muslim community to hate, uh, hate speech. The Commission has a statutory obligation to investigate and conciliate complaints under the Race Discrimination Act, but the most controversial and the best known of the provisions of that Act is Section 18C that prohibits acts, as you, I'm sure you well know, offend, insult, humiliate and intimidate a person because of their race, because of their race, national or ethnic origin, in a public place. It's actually quite narrow. You've got to prove each of those elements. I believe this section is vital to the protection of the Muslim community, among other <coughs> minority groups, against racial abuse and hate speech. But efforts have been made by both the Abbott and Turnbull governments to amend Section 18C by deleting the words offend and insult and indeed humiliate on the ground that the provision has a chilling effect on freedom of speech. This despite the clear and consistent jurisprudence of the Federal Court and the Circuit Court that the prohibition in 18C does not apply to a mere, a mere insult but rather is confined to profound levels of insult and offence. Less understood than 18C is that even where an act or speech is prohibited by the section, it will be protected by section 18D if it's in good faith or in the public interest or a work of artist, artistic or scientific uh, purpose. Very few cases have ever exceeded the Bolt case being a rare exception as the federal courts have set a very high threshold for any civil action based on these provisions. Last year, a parliamentary committee was asked by the government to report on reform proposals for 18C. And it reported in uh, early March, but the committee proved unable to make a recommendation for reform. Rather, the report listed six possible options for reform without expressing the view as to any way forward. 
The report did, however, make some recommendations about the complaints processes of the Commission, many of which have been proposed by the Commission itself. In the aftermath of the parliamentary report, the Government introduced a bill to amend 18C, as they promised, and to delete the words offend, uh, insult and humiliate, and also to adopt some reforms uh, to the complaints process. The bill failed to pass the Senate, where it was rather unusually introduced in the first instance, primarily because it was quite clear it would fail in the House of Representatives. Uh, there might have possibly have been a chance it would pass in the Senate, but it didn't. Um, and all those uh, proposals for reform of 18C failed, but some of the uh, uh, changes to the um, complaints process did succeed, uh, and they gave, give the President expanded powers to terminate matters where appropriate, and we're very happy with those or most of those changes. And so we return to the status quo. Despite the gallons of ink or digital technology spent on the 18C issue, we're right back to where we've been for the last 20 years. Um, and that is, and it's a view of the Commission and certainly my personal view, that the right to freedom of speech is sensibly balanced by the prohibition on public abuse on racial grounds and it has been administered and applied by the Federal Court and the Federal Circuit Court in a sensible manner. But it should be acknowledged that it's not easy to achieve this balance. As the High Court of Australia discovered in the Monas case of the Muslim cleric who was ultimately responsible for the later Lint Cafe tragedy. You might remember that Monas had been charged with a criminal offence, among many others, of using the Commonwealth Postal Service to send abusive letters to the parents of Australians killed in Afghanistan. These letters were alleged to fall foul of the prohibition on offensive language, thus the prohibition is similar to Section 18C. This is a little bit like prosecuting Al Capone successfully for tax evasion, but nonetheless this is what it was, a technical provision that I'm sure most of us have never heard of um, in the Commonwealth Postal Act. But that's what happened. He was charged, they were letters seen as disruptive, as deliberately designed to disturb the families, but they were also designed to make a political point that Mr Monas objected to the Australian engagement in the conflict in Afghanistan. So the question for the High Court of Australia was a very interesting one. Does the right to freedom of political communication, implied as a right by the High Court of Australia, does that uh, trump or outweigh, I mustn't use that word again, but outweigh, outweigh the right not to be abused in public on the grounds of race or national origin? How do you balance them? It's not easy, and it wasn't easy for the High Court. Well, if it can happen, it will happen. Only six judges sat on that case, not seven. Three judges found that the provision in the Commonwealth Postal Act uh, violated the right to freedom of political communication. In other words, Mr Monas had the right to write and use the Postal Service to write to the families of those young men killed in Afghanistan because it was an exercise of his right to uh, uh, complain about Australia's involvement in that conflict. But the three other judges, all of them the women, and I ask you to think about that, all of the women said no. The right to freedom of political communication was not, or did not, outweigh the prohibition on abuse in these circumstances. 
and for the technical legal reason that if it's a split decision, the lower conviction stands, Mr Monas was ultimately uh, and finally convicted of that criminal offence. But I raise the case, one, because of, of, its, um, of its notoriety, but mainly because it demonstrates that the finest legal minds in the land cannot agree on where that balance properly lies. I think the view of, the, um, of those judges that held uh, that the right not to be abused in this way on the grounds of race or religion in this case, a mixture, uh, was the preeminent balanced right. But I think it's fair to say that reasonable minds here today would take a different view. But it is something that we are capable of discussing as informed and reasonable citizens of Australia. Uh, it doesn't have to be something that leads to the, what is now um, a, a profoundly ideological debate about 18C uh, that purports to be about the right to freedom of speech but in fact is really camouflage for uh, a deeply ideolo ideological opposition to, to the provisions in the Racial Discrimination Act. If you were going to be concerned about freedom of speech in Australia, you would not start with Section 18C of the Race Discrimination Act. You would start with the counter-terrorism laws, with the laws that prohibit um, advocacy of various kinds, with uh, uh, restrictions on the right to speak in the public arena and freedom of association. Uh, you would look at our defamation laws. Um, but I would think that for the most part the right to freedom of speech is alive and well in Australia and, uh, and long may it uh, continue to be so. But it has to be watched and balanced and it will change from, from generation to generation. Uh, we will think about things in different ways as time goes by and that is the, that is the miracle, if, I, if you like, of the common law and of the ability of judges to make these kinds of judgments. Well, returning to reform of 18C, it is clear and was clear that yet again Australia's multicultural community rose as one to defend the right not to be abused in the public arena on the grounds of race. While the embers of the fire are still smouldering, and a private member's bill to reform 18C is now before Parliament. The ideological objections to 18C within government have been defeated and the prohibition on hate speech on the grounds of race in the public arena remains. And the position of the Human Rights Commission is consistent that the balance uh, between the two is at the moment appropriate, um, that it's, it's proportionate to meet a legitimate aim to use the language of the High Court. And we're comforted that Section 18C remains on the books to send a clear message to the community that racial abuse is not to be tolerated in our democratic country. Well, my third point concerns yet another discriminatory effect of government laws and policies on the Muslim community, and that is the disproportionate impact of our migration laws on Muslim asylum seekers and refugees. It's a sad reality that overwhelmingly asylum seekers and refugees detained in immigration detention centres in Australia and Christmas Island and offshore in Nauru and Manus are Muslims. So too are those in the Australian community whose claims to refugee status have yet to be assessed or those who are on a bridging visa or temporary protection visas with no hope of permanent settlement in Australia. I will not belabor, belabor the breaches of human rights imposed by indefinite detention in the current harsh conditions. The egregious violations of international law created by our Migration Act have been amply demonstrated and evidenced by the many UN rapporteur reports, by the United Nations Office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights, by several federal parliamentary reports, 
by reports of civil society and finally by the Human Rights Commission itself in our report, The Forgotten Children, in 2014. My concern tonight is the disproportionate impact of these policies on Muslims. Accurate statistics are rather difficult to find and they change constantly. But as of February this year, 1,400 approximately people continue to be detained in indefinite immigration detention in Australia. 378 detainees, including 45 children, remain in Nauru. 45 children and their families. 837 adult men remain and have remained for years on Manus. The average time in detention is about uh, 490 to 500 days, but many have been detained for years. And I was at Villawood just a few days ago. I didn't meet anybody under four years in detention, and one woman in particular had been detained for seven years in immigration detention. These are shocking stories, and it's an hour's drive from where we are tonight, where these people are detained in conditions that most Australians would find absolutely unacceptable and where most detainees said they would rather be in prison, where there was a clear end date and fair processes than to remain in, in indefinite detention. Now, but that's not my point. My point is that the countries of origin of most asylum seekers and refugees are predominantly Muslim nations. Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan and Iran have overwhelmingly predominant Muslim communities. Exceptions uh, amongst the um, asylum seeker community are Myanmar, which has 4.3% Muslim community, the Democratic Republic of Congo with 10% Muslim community, and Ethiopia with 34%. Religious persecution is one of the five grounds on which a person can seek protection under the Refugee Convention. Research by the, in, in 2016, last year, by the Institute of Family Studies, shows that 56% of asylum seekers arriving in Australia have been subject to racial and religious persecution, particularly vulnerable amongst the Muslim groups are the Hazara from Afghanistan and the Rohingya from Myanmar. The key human rights concerns for these asylum seekers, most Muslim, are prolonged immigration detention, delayed status assessment, third country processing in inhumane conditions that have been found to breach the torture convention, lack of access to permanent residency for those arriving by sea without a visa and family separation contrary to the most fundamental principle of the uh, principles of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. But let me conclude by returning to the question of Australian values and principles that unite us. The Prime Minister has recently announced that his government will put Australian values at the heart of citizenship requirements. These values are, he suggests, respect, the rule of law, commitment to freedom and to liberal democratic representative government. The need to define and articulate these values is a fine idea. One element of a strong national identity is a clear articulation of national values. The United States has been very successful in articulating its values through the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And I suggest that one way to strengthen the commitment by Australians and, and future Australians to core values is to set them out in a document that provides a benchmark for all that we stand for. It's notable that Australia is the only common law country in the world that does not have a Bill or Charter of Rights. The failure to set out our core freedoms and rights is compounded by the fact that the Constitution protects very few rights. We have a right to vote, 
a right to a fair trial for federal criminal matters, to be compensated for property that's been taken from us, and the High Court of Australia has implied a right to freedom of political communication, but there is no right to freedom of expression as such in the Constitution. The common law has sadly not proved to be a strong safeguard of fundamental rights because of the supremacy of Parliament. If legislation passed by Parliament is clear and unambiguous, there is very little place for the common law principles. Sadly, our parliamentarians, both in government and opposition, have voted all too often to displace freedom from arbitrary detention, freedom of speech and association, and the right to privacy. And they've imposed security laws that, in my view, are seriously disproportionate in their impact to the Muslim community and disproportionate to the threat. Let us agree upon the principles that underpin multiculturalism, respect for all cultures, religions and ethnicity. This is not cultural relativism. There's no free reign to Sharia law, Christian canon law or Jewish halakha law. There is equality before the law and non-discriminatory treatment as fundamental principles of multiculturalism. I propose again that we articulate Australian values by drafting a declaration of key rights and freedoms to which we can all agree and around which we can unite. I congratulate you all on the creation of this new Islamic Studies group because I know in my heart that human rights protection ultimately depends upon education and independent scholarship. Thank you very much. is Professor Samina Yasmin, who is the director of the Centre for Muslim States and Societies and also a lecturer in political science and international relations at the University of Western Australia uh, in Perth. Professor Yasmin is a specialist in political and strategic developments in uh, South Asia with a focus on Pakistan and the role of Islam in uh, world politics and citizenship among uh, immigrant groups, particularly in Australia. Her book, Understanding Muslim Identities, uh, focuses on Muslims in Australia, in particular the dynamics of social um, inclusion as well as exclusion. So please join me in welcoming Professor Samina Yasmin. Thank you very much, uh, Lily Rahim, Shara uh, Makhbazadeh, Gillian Trigg and everyone else. Uh, I think after the wonderful presentation by Gillian Trigg, it's probably hard for me to follow uh, the same sort of style and same standard, but let me share my ideas. What I'm going to do in terms of human rights and Islamophobia is to look at as an academic and say what agenda the new association that has really been formed under the leadership of Shara Makhbazadeh, Lili Rahim, Dira and others, what should be the agenda of this association and what is the responsibility of academia in this process. So I would start first by talking about what do I think of Islamophobia, how do I define. Uh, I think 
it's very hard. Islamophobia really is about the fear. It has a certain attribution of ideas, traits, and behavioral practices to Islam and Muslims. And the whole concept really revolves around the fact that somehow Islam and Muslims are different from the rest. And at one level, when we look at Islamophobia, it looks at the whole difference in civilizational terms. Muslims, especially in relationship to the West, are different and therefore they need to be feared and be concerned about. But at another level, I think we need to remember that Islamophobia also <coughs> represents the concerns uh, of certain communities when it's combined with national interest or political considerations. And I'm thinking more recently of an example in India where two Muslim citizens of India, Indian born, were told that they need to go to Pakistan because they are Muslims, uh, even though they had never had any relationship with Pakistan. So political considerations, political ideas, and also the notion of civilizational difference really underpins the concept that somehow Islam is different, Muslims are different, and they need to be feared. They need to be isolated, they need to be othered. But I think Islamophobia, like every other idea, does not exist in a vacuum. It doesn't exist like oxygen in the air. It's created, it's articulated, and it's communicated to people. So when I talk about Islamophobia, I think I cannot but link it to the notion of narratives. Narratives, whether they're good or bad, they actually focus on the concept of where any community a small or a large one finds itself, and where that community needs to get to, what is the ideal state at which these people have to arrive to be peaceful, comfortable, and at ease in their life. This whole journey from where we are and where we need to, and the contradictions that come in the way, is really a journey that people, unless and until they communicate to others, the narrators, the audience do not really clearly understand exactly what it is that they have to do. Now what has that got to do with Islamophobia? I think when we talk about Islamophobia, it is a narrative of Islamophobia. There are groups, there are people, there are sections in the government, there are sections in the wider community, there's media who create this idea that somehow Islam is different, Islamic values are different, Islamic practices are different, and the way to get to that ideal state where Islam would cease to pose that threat to whatever the wider value system is, is to either change the nature of Islam, so reform it, quote-unquote, or try and make sure that Muslims know the limits of their behavior. So I think Islamophobia has to be understood in terms of narratives of Islamophobia with a very strong role of narrators who are creating this ideal state which should be followed by everyone. And within that exists an element of activism. When we tell people that Muslims are a problem, they're the other, we are really asking implicitly or explicitly that those who are our audience need to do something to change the situation. So I do want to point out that this whole process of uh, narratives creating this environment has increased over a period of time. Uh, often try and personalize it because I think when I came to Australia in 1979, I used to be seen as a woman from Pakistan or a woman from South Asia. When I started teaching, I was seen as that woman from Pakistan at UWA. And very quickly, and as Jillian said, you were talking about 
2001 happened and suddenly I turned into a Muslim academic. At what level anyone had the right to shift my identity from being an academic to being a Muslim academic was never discussed, it was never questioned, it was not even considered worthy of any sort of debate on. I was just simply cast in that position and I think there are a lot of others who are Muslims who have been placed in that position. So Islamophobia as a narrative I think has been gaining ground because there have been groups not just locally in Australia but also internationally who have created this idea that somehow Muslim mind, Muslim values, Muslim concept behaviors are different. I don't want to go too much into debating Islamophobia or its origins because I think anyone and especially in a university environment is very familiar with the origin of the term. Started in the, at the turn of the last century but really has picked up since the 1990s with Runnymede Trust and now everybody knows that there is something known as Islamophobia. But let me now move on to human rights and again I'm, I must point out that with Dylan Trick sitting there, it's sort of, I hope you don't find it presumptuous that I'm giving you a sense of where I think human rights are all about, but I will try and do that anyway. For me, I think human rights are about basic three uh, aspects of our lives. One is simple, the right to life. The second is the right to liberty. Liberty to do what we want to do in a way that we want to feel comfortable without compromising the rights of others and of course respect and I'm glad that the Prime Minister included that in the list of values but I think the respect has a lot larger meaning to it, uh, the way I look at it. Now when I look at life, liberty and respect I really think of it in terms of the way Islam or some Muslim scholars would look at it in, and I divide that into duties of commission and duties of permission. So I guess basically where I approach human rights as an area of study is that everyone's rights, individuals or communities, need to be understood in terms of responsibilities of the others, the wider community, individuals or the government or media or everyone else. The duty of commission requires those who are responsible to ensure the rights of those that need to be protected is that they at least create conditions in which the rights of the people are protected. When it comes to the right of life, what I would say is that it's the duty or responsibility of those responsible for ensuring those rights is that people have their lives protected. Duty of omission basically means that they have to make sure that any condition that endangers people are really looked at and avoided or at least counted very actively. Uh, the duty in terms of liberty, I look at it in the same way. The duty of commission basically forces people who are responsible for ensuring the rights of people is that they create the conditions in which people whose rights need to be protected actually are able to live their life in a way that they want to live. And again, what I said earlier, without compromising the liberties of others. And the duty of omission in that case really again means exactly what I just said, to make sure that any condition that prevents people from enjoying that liberty is stopped or actively countered or rechanneled. And finally, respect. I think the duty of commission requires people to respect the values and ideas of others. And the duty of commission requires people 
not to treat that as a matter of tolerance because the moment we start tolerating something we're actually removing the element of respect. So let me sort of move into basically what I think is the relationship between Islamophobia and human rights the way I look at. I think you need to look at international environment from 2001 but even from 1990s onwards where there's been a consistent increase in the level of Islamophobia and that has consistently impacted upon the rights of Muslims. And they're not just restricted to Australia because while we can be more aware of what's happening to 2.2% of the Australian population, the reality is that if we look at what's happening in Canada, what's happening in America, what's happening in Britain, what's happening uh, in France, and even what's happening in India, the level of anger and uh, distrust of Muslims is increasing and with that the inability of those who are responsible for protecting the rights of Muslims has also increased. Effectively the narrative of Islamophobia has impacted on the human rights of Muslims. And given that condition what's happened is that you find a new logic emerging within the Muslim community that is very interestingly equating Muslims with Jews. Uh, very recently I was in Pakistan and I was reading this op-ed written by a young woman who said that the way developments are moving, uh, very quickly we'll find ourselves in a position where just like the Jews were uh, sort of, uh, impacted upon, that Muslims might feel a similar situation. That new narrative is really reflecting a very clear sense of being excluded, isolated, and not just simply in Western liberal societies, but also in other non-Western, non-liberal societies. I guess given that, what my question is, what I had said initially I'd like to look at is, what is the research agenda, what is the discussion agenda and, or analysis that the new association that's been formed needs to focus on? I think it's very good that we look at the figures and ideas, but there needs to be more research done on who is creating this narrative of Islamophobia. What are their backgrounds? What are their linkages, not just simply domestically in each state, but internationally? And the reason why I think that's very important is that unless and until those linkages are clearly understood and explained, we tend to limit our understanding of Islamophobia. We think what's happening in Australia is very peculiar to Australia. We think what's happening in uh, India is very peculiar to India. What's happening in Burma is peculiar to that. Once we start looking at these international linkages between the narrators and their backgrounds and their interests that are prompting them into that, I think we'll be able to understand exactly how do we counter that narrative. I'm very glad that Julian Triggs talked about the government and at some level even its inability to deal with this issue in Australia at the moment. But again, we also need to understand and do research on what factors are prompting governments to move, and especially in liberal democracies, to move away from the principles that they stood up for for so long to accepting that it's okay to target a minority community. Because when we look at numbers, Muslims living in Western liberal societies, by the wildest numbers of estimates, are not more than 3.3% of the total Muslim population living elsewhere. So really the research in terms of what's prompting the governments 
and the politicians to one, not counter the narrative of Islamophobia and two, not to do what is the duty of commission in a way that the rights of Muslims are protected. Now, I can see Lily's coming up with it, so I'll be very quick, but I think what I don't want to do is... <laughs> what I don't want to do is to just leave the discussion here, because I think too often Muslims, Muslim academics and those who have analysed Muslim identities have only focused on the agency of the narratives who promote the idea of Islamophobia. Muslims are the recipients of Islamophobia. Muslims are the ones who rights are, or human rights are being violated. So therefore Muslims need protection. I want to add another dimension to this. I think Muslims have an agency and they have a responsibility to not do what they accuse others of doing. I mean, it's not a matter of accusation, there's definitely facts, and Gillian Triggs has already shown that. But I think there's another dimension of this relationship between Islamophobia and human rights. Muslim communities around the world have used this idea of growing Islamophobia to, in fact, violate the human rights of Muslims themselves. It is done in the name of being different, it's done in the name of Islam having answers to all the problems, and it is done in the name of protecting Islamic identity. That violation, in case of my country of origin, Pakistan, became very obvious very recently in a horrific case where a young man was accused of blasphemy. It wasn't even discussed, it wasn't even accepted, it wasn't even established that he had committed blasphemy, but a whole mob of students actually sought him targeted him, attacked him, shot him, threw him from the top floor, and then they were going to burn his body. That human right, the notion of human right, actually emerged out of the sense that somehow Islamic understanding of what it means to be a good Muslim, or a very rigid understanding of what it means to be a good Muslim, is so strong that these people have the right to do what they want to do. So I think in extreme cases, Michelle Khan's example is one, but let me bring it close to home. The examples where Muslim minority communities use uh, the difference between Islam and the rest and Islamophobia to justify practices such, like dom such as domestic violence, I think it is undermining Muslim women's human rights. It is undermining the rights of men who think differently. So if we are to really make a difference not just in Australia, but internationally. I think the research agenda for our association and for everyone else also needs to include what is the mindset that promotes certain narratives within the Muslim community that actually ignores human rights, actually ignores the responsibility of Muslims in terms of the duty of commission and omission, and not just simply vis-a-vis -vis Muslims, for other Muslims, but rights and responsibilities of Muslims vis-a-vis non-Muslims to make sure that the ultimate state that they want to create is that of peace, not the one in which Muslims feel that as victims and as suppressed community in different spaces that they have a right to extend the same oppression and suppression to others. So I guess what it really requires is an openness to say there are problems in the wider community, Islamophobia exists, it's increasing, 
but there are problems in the Muslim community and the Muslim community has to come to terms with that and academia has a role to play in this process. I'll stop it here and I hope I've finished in two minutes. Thank you. <laughs>
political science and legal studies make to our understanding of diversity of Muslim experiences and expressions. An association such as AIMS, by its very nature, has to be multidisciplinary and it needs to capture and represent the diversity of the subject matter. AIMS will endeavor to provide a network of knowledge to bring scholars on Islam and Muslim societies together to promote research excellence and public engagement. This is a national initiative. It will provide new opportunities for scholars across the country to engage with each other and find ways of collaborating. Collaboration is key. I see many friends and colleagues from different universities, even from the University of Melbourne, I see, here today. I'm humbled to be in your presence, all the more so because I am well aware of the demands put on us by our own respective universities. The university agenda of securing ever larger enrollments, student enrollments, and research grants can undermine our natural instinct to collaborate because each university seeks to enhance its performance at the expense of the competition. This institutional rivalry is not conducive to cross-institutional collaboration, but we need to break out of this framework. As scholars, we are driven by the question, by a quest for knowledge, and knowledge can't be limited to one institution. AIMS will provide the intellectual cover for a truly national and interdisciplinary approach to the study of Islam and Muslim societies. And let's not forget here that a lot of innovative work is done by young scholars both in terms of research and teaching. The young generation of academics in this space have a lot to contribute and it's incumbent on an association such as AIMS to foster and encourage them. In line with this commitment, I'm delighted to report that AIMS will be working towards establishing a PhD scholarship to be held at the University of Choice by the successful recipient. This is only one measure, and we can do much more. It's ultimately up to every single member of AIMS to turn the association into a vibrant hub of scholarship and the Interim Executive Committee will welcome ideas and initiatives that help advance this agenda. I appreciate that you all have some comments and questions for my esteemed colleagues, Professor Triggs and Professor Yasmin. So I would like to end by thanking my colleague, Professor Lili Rahim, for taking charge of this launch, and also Dr. Gina Krein from the University of Sydney. Um, and also offer a warm vote of thanks to other members of the Interim Executive Committee for their energy and vision. Dr. Joshua Roos from Australian Catholic University, Dr. Daria Inner from Charles Sturt University, and Professor Halim Rain from Griffith University. You're all welcome to visit AIMS online and the address would be aims.org.au where you can see a list of current members 
and if you haven't already joined as a new member. And also learn about our plans for the future, especially the national conference which we'll be holding in December this year at the University of Melbourne. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Shara. Well, um, we're now at the, the, uh, the final phase of uh, the event, the Q&A uh, session. So can I please invite the, uh, the speakers to uh, sit up front here for the Q&A. Um, what we'll do is we'll take two questions uh, at a time. Hello, I'm Kamisha. I'm a lecturer. I think that's in New South Wales. I've got a question for all panel members. Perhaps it's accurate. We're not political scientists. Hey, hey, by the way. Um, in light of the French presidential election, what is the, the future of both dialogue among the mainstream community and the global community in France, and also the future of Islamophobia in that country? <laughs> <laughs>
uh, that can uh, be true to fresh value, uh, but which will um, reach reasonable uh, outcomes in relation to how they manage the question of migration in the future. So I see it very encouraging so far, and I certainly put my money on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I just add to that point. I think what we're missing is uh, another manifestation of populism uh, and the scapegoating of Muslim communities. That idea that part that the Muslim community, the outsiders of our community, have taken away our jobs and we have to manage them, we have to uh, manage them physically, we have to manage them in terms of culturally. Um, that idea, unfortunately, is spreading. It's a global problem. It's not a French problem or an American problem, Australian problem. It's a global problem. It is the whole, I think, first the last bit is shifting towards populism. And I want to echo what my colleague from already suggested. It's really incumbent on political groupings, activists, Muslim or non-Muslim, to point out the flaws in the logic of populism. And it's incumbent on Muslim activists to also highlight the criminality and the commonalities, not more than similarities, the commonalities of the values that are important are integral to Islam and Muslim way of life, to the Western way of life. Really, there's so much there's so much in common. Um, <coughs> it's really hard to differentiate. If you don't if you don't look at the label Western or Muslim, you will not be able to differentiate between uh, between the values. So I think that's very important to highlight. Uh, this is not a burning question, but in the absence of uh, other questions, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it. Coming on the bus uh, there was, tonight, there was a lady, or I presume she was a lady, just sitting across me, and all she had was a, uh, all that was visible was a pair of eyes. Uh, is, it, um, is, it, is it out of the scope? Uh, I would regard one of, one of a sort of an unwritten or unrecognised Australian values is that we're able to recognise people. And, and would it be too far-fetched to, to uh, people that uh, want to come here and, and all that's visible is their eyes? Uh, because I think that's more inflammatory to the average Australian person than, than, than scarves. Go back and find what they think is the appropriate dress code. 
so they stand out, and that gained increased sort of prevalence among women. But then there's also Nepal, which also became more and more prevalent. Again, the number is very small. So the question is, what do you do when you find someone like that in Australia? I would look at it differently in terms of saying, do you react to that and say, this is unacceptable, this is not an Australian value, I want you to take your makeup off. You can do that, because at one level, you know, what your point is that the value that underpins Australian system requires us to be able to see each other. But my question is that, are you going to insist on that without giving attention to the fact that the more you insist that she has to take it off, the more you're going to actually increase her commitment to that idea. If you leave it the way I look at it in terms of the process that's gone on, you might find some of these women actually giving it up on their own volition. So, where do I place myself and I think I don't really want to do that? as someone who is very committed to the idea that whether I'm here or elsewhere in Pakistan, I should be able to see somebody's face and they should be able to see my face. I would never do that. But if someone else chooses to do that, and again, wherever they are, I would extend them respect in the hope that at one level, somebody from within the community would get them to see there is another way of being a Muslim and still operating in the environment. No, you don't. <laughs> 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 I'm not going to answer the question except to say that, that thank you for asking the question because I think that in this kind of environment we have to have those questions out on the table because that's what people are thinking and, and so we need to have an answer to it um, and, and I think uh, the answer is, is a very good one. I mean, from my personal perspective to be dealing with somebody when I have no facial capacity to recognise or no language in the face, no emotion, is very, very difficult. It's very difficult to deal with something like that. You feel that they're, they're alienated, estranged, and keeping you at a distance. So it's difficult for Australians because we, we, we act very differently. And so your question is important. I haven't got an answer. The best answer I can come up with is, is really essentially one of, of liberalism, and that is very few women do that. If they feel the need to do it, and it reflects their, their studies and their convictions, surely we're a wide enough society to tolerate it. Now, it could never be a tolerated if it's going to create danger. You can't drive a car like that. Uh, there may be instances in which the police have to have a better level. Of, there will always be ways in which you moderate that. But my preference would always be to take a liberal approach and to say, just let that woman adjust to Australian life in her own way. And if she insists on doing it, that's fine. But I'm of the generation where I remember the horror of Bridget Bardot wearing a bikini in calm on the beach. <laughs> and now going back to the French, they're sending patrol officers uh, to prosecute people who are wearing the full body gear on the beach, which in my age I much prefer to wear. At one level, this is a very chilling, chilling thing. Um, and by emphasising the issue, we, we simply make it much worse and we drive people into. into is negative position. So, but thank you for your question because I do think it's just got to be discussed and we've all got to get our thoughts out, uh, amateurish or, or not, it might not be.
Um, it is an honor to bring you back to talking and hear what you guys have to say. Um, the question that I have is, to what extent do you guys think that education or lack thereof is contributing to this overall phobia? And um, what kind of recommendations would you guys have in terms of how we can actually work together to change this? If I'm kind of going with the whole fear of what people don't know, well, I, 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 of course, I would give, I must give the answer that education is ultimately the key, and that is why I'm so um, encouraging important this association, because we live in this world of, of, of uh, alternative facts, whatever they are, false news, go, going back to the children overboard issue that the one one government. Um, I think it's absolutely imperative that we get the facts and the evidence out there and, and that means education. So it, it all comes back to education, uh, to the way parents uh, work out with their children. <coughs> We've done quite a bit of work, my colleague Dr. Simpson has done a work on the, on, I'm sure many of you here at university have done work on the, on what, what stimulates And it is with, uh, with, the, with the family, uh, but it begins there and it continues in school. So I think education is vital, but if I can add, my view is that leadership is also vital. And when we do not have strong leadership on these questions, then, then the, uh, the disease of, of um, Islamophobia can spread, the contamination spreads, and we're already seeing it. And I'm, I'm astonished that we have so few political leaders prepared to stand up for these principles. It, it amazes me in modern, basically educated Australia, uh, that we, we have politicians equivocating rather than standing up strongly and directly for the very principles that underpin the success of the other We're not the most successful multicultural country in the world, but we aspire to be, and that's, that's fine. But to do that, we need leadership, and that I think we are fabulous. Australian and also Malaysian, so Malaysian is a 
major part of itself has been very progressive and moderate Muslim countries. Uh, over the decades, we've seen the rise of Wahhabism or Australian conservatism. And currently, we have two systems of law running in the country. We have civil law based on common British law and also the Sharia court, which deals mostly with family and inheritance and divorce law. And currently, there are discussions about introducing Kudu's law, which is a very conservative approach to Islamic law, where you include penalties like amputation or stoning and whipping to protest and crime. So, as a non Muslim, a lot of times you're shut out from the concept debate, saying that you have no right to discuss these things because you're non Muslim and you're not qualified to quote the Quran and these things. But as a legalist and a rights advocate who are generally against corporate or capital punishment, how would you walk this type, this really fine tightrope of framing your argument about encroaching other people's ideas and so one, one more question and then the response to it. Yes, thank you. Um, my name is Ian Rice, Vice President of the Secular Party of Australia. I've got a question for Professor Sharon. Um, you outlined to us the structure of aims and, and uh, the work it's going to do. A lot, a lot to do with human rights and free speech in Australia. But surely the greater problem is in other countries, for example in Bangladesh, to merely express the desire for human rights is seen as blasphemy. And all the free Three thought bloggers in Bangladesh have either been hacked to death by Islamic mobs or they've been driven out of the country. And similar things are happening in Pakistan and in Indonesia. So is AIMS going to investigate those problems too? Well, I'll start with the second question. So, very good point. There are all sorts of problems going on everywhere. The association doesn't have a prescriptive approach to the study of this It is merely a network of scholarship. And as my colleague, Dr. Yasmin, just mentioned, there are issues in Pakistan, there are issues in Bangladesh. There are research going on in those spaces. And um, when we have our national conference, we will be incorporating research on those areas uh, far and wide. So it's not going to be prescriptive or limited to um, on the topic of Islamophobia or just Islam in Australia and the problems in Australia. Uh, I think I'm glad you mentioned that because more recent case, which one of my current PhD students has written about, is about a blogger in Maldives that went killed because he was writing about ideas that others didn't take. I think. That's what I said, that it is the responsibility of the association, but even other thinking people, to look at this phenomena and try and understand why they think. Because at one level, what's happening is some Muslims, not all of them, are taking it upon themselves to argue that they have the perfect answer of true Islam with a capital T. And therefore, it gives them the right to violate the rights of other Muslims. So it becomes Muslim violation of human rights for the Muslims. And if we are to really understand what's happening in the Muslim space and in Muslim and non-Muslim relationships, we will have to go into those areas. And again, I'm glad Sharam said there isn't anything prescriptive, the area that we're going to go in, but I think it's up to everyone who wants to do this to see what's happening and why is it that social media brings up such negative reactions. 
there was a question directed about how, how you walk the line mm -hmm. between sort of ex the extreme or fundamental disputes, the role of, of, of Sharia law in, in some jurisdictions, and um, a sort of secular lawyer who's asking questions about, about human rights. And I think that the, the way in which a modern liberal democracy manages this is that we have essentially a secular society which respects the, 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 the views of all. But I don't think you, you, can, you can have a, a democratic liberal society in which you have a particular religious canon dominating. Um, and I think it's just unworkable. Um, it's always, of course, going to be more challenging in those countries where you've got overwhelmingly uh, Muslim communities. Uh, but equally, in communities that have been overwhelmingly, at least nominally Christian, those Christian views have not influenced, or not been not influenced, but they have not controlled the way in which the democratic society works. So I think there are examples of ways, even though you have a majority of a particular religious group, you're still able to have a constitutional um, uh, uh, liberal democracy which protects the rights of all uh, uh, freedom of expression. And as I say, it is the great uh, human right protected in our own constitution. And I think we need to talk about that a little more than we have done. Um, for Malaysia, I think you two have had a successful um, moderation about that is our threat. And the challenge for that democracy is, is to ensure that uh, the, the liberalism is, is maintained and respect different religious groups, but never allow them to dominate the political process. We're, we're, we're running out of time, so what we'll do is we'll take the last four questions. Uh, two questions from from here, and then after that, two questions from there, and then the uh, the speakers will respond to all four, and then we'll have to close uh, the event. So the two speakers, uh, sorry, two questions from this side. Mary McKinnon, retiree, and you partly answered my question, which relates somewhat to the last question which was asked. I'll just preface this by saying that Vatican II was somewhat helpful with regards to the Roman Catholic uh, practitioners. But my question is, with specific regards to the last panelist, who spoke of Islam as being an organic religion. Number one, to what extent do you believe that this organic religion will change to become, dare I say, acceptable to the greater community? And would a global summit of leaders from all those diverse countries practicing um, Islam be helpful towards that organic change? Um, my name is Watt, I'm a student at UTS. 
Um, my question specifically to Professor Yasmin, you mentioned that it's not just the role of non-Muslims to fix Islamophobia, but that Muslims need to be coming to the table. Personally, as a Muslim, I do feel that Muslims do come to the table time and time again, more than I think necessary, after any crime or anything that happens associated with Muslims. Maybe it's not actually a Muslim, but they think it's a Muslim. Muslims issue an apology in any way. There's constant community engagement. What else can Muslims be doing? Because it's really exhausting to have that pressure put on you. You feel like you can't just exist as a person. You can't be a Muslim without constantly having to apologize for the crimes of other people. <laughs> okay, so uh, it's not organic. Yes, it's not his organic. But any other religious organic. It is enmeshed in the life of the human being, communities, families. People interpret it the way they want it and they, they change it uh, with the circumstances and depending on conditions they live in. That is why there's such diversity in Islam. I'm not talking about the sectarian traditions with Islam. I'm talking about the practices of Islam in Indonesia and, and in Iran, Afghanistan, North Africa. They are very, very, very distinct. Uh, you just have to travel there to see how different they are. Uh, and yes, I wouldn't put the question the way you phrased it, but the point that whether Islam is capable of reformation, Islam is capable of change, uh, of reinvention, absolutely. There is talk of uh, an Australian version of Islam. There is talk of a European version of Islam. This is in the literature. Because second, third generation Muslims who have lived in, in the West, have different experiences to their parents, to their families. They, their issues are different. Their challenges, their daily challenges are different. And that impacts how people relate to their religion. So, my answer is yes. I mean, for sure, it's yes.
also need to be Muslims to break their respect. Because you will not hear this debate from Muslims about others. But Muslims when they keep on hearing about it about Muslims, that's where the reaction comes in. How often do we have to apologize? In terms of the younger generation, would Islamophobia go to the younger generation? My fear is unless and until the grown-ups in today's age take responsibility for telling the youth that they have to look at more differently, they will go into the younger people as well. We're already seeing signs of those, and that it's more like interest in the non-Muslim space than in the Muslim space. So we need to be very careful about how these things are going. Do I have to answer the last question now so that you can have the last question? <laughs> 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 in terms of how Muslims have to apologize, I think what I'm really talking about is, is shifting the way Muslims, not just simply in Australia, but around the world, assume and protect their identity. Muslims need to stop being apologetic and assume their identity of and it is in that space that we can say we're not going to apologize for a terrorist who comes and blasts someone else. We are going to tell you that actually there are people in my immediate family who have suffered from it. Let me tell you in the most remote aircraft. When you change the debate to that level, you actually tell people that it's not Islam versus the race, it's a terrorist versus those who love. To change the attitude, change the language and the narrative that Muslims adopt. Other way that I think what I hated, and Lily was because she had given me two minutes, and I know she had half a minute now, <laughs> is that we tend to among Muslim communities as a minority who uses Islam for the justification to say, we will give you the real answer of the true Islam with a capital C. In that space, they violate the rights of Muslims. When a woman puts it on Facebook to say, or two women say, it's okay for a man, it's easy to consider it on stage to admonish a woman, they are violating other women's rights, other Muslim women's rights. Muslims have a responsibility to stand up and say, we do not agree with this version of that, women have done that. But I think it's really that space I'm saying, Muslims need to stop being victims, they need to be agents of change. And that's really where, and not simply in Australia, but globally, that's where they need to change. Uh, just very briefly on the last question about areas of research, uh, I can only repeat what I said earlier that AIMS is not going to be prescriptive about what area to research. It is a network of scholarship and really thrives on the work that's done, particularly work that's done, by many researchers in this room and across the country in Australia. And having said that, of course it's important to look at how Islam is taught uh, at universities. And my colleague here, Professor Ali, is in fact going to look into that. So, uh, if you have any questions regarding that topic, you can directly <laughs> <laughs> add one more point. Research is expensive. Someone has to fund this research. All these great ideas that we have 
needs support and sponsorship. So if there's anyone here, Islam is taught at university level and also Islam is taught at school level, secondary, primary and secondary levels. And it's important and a very important topic of scholarship to also study that. And what are the issues that are being raised, highlighted, shortcomings, strengths? And I think this would perhaps be a very important eye opener to highlight the issues of strength and the similarities in terms of that I was mentioning earlier. So there's plenty of scope for research, plenty of ideas and inspirations here. Uh, I hope that everyone joins together and makes makes it happen. Well, on that positive note, um, sadly we've run out of time, so we'll have to uh, end tonight's uh, event. But before we do that, We'd like, we've got a, a, a present for Professor Triggs and uh, Professor Samina Yasmin, a little token for their very inspiring uh, presentations tonight uh, by uh, Professor Sharam Akbar Zada. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.